0: Hello, my name's Nick Sawyer and welcome to the Swap podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We've reached episode nine already, but we've done so without touching on a topic that has and will continue to transform derivatives markets, technology. We're going to put that right in this episode by exploring some of the cutting edge technologies and companies out there and the problems they're trying to solve. Use of technology has massively improved levels of automation and efficiency in derivatives markets, but there are still a number of choke points where processes remain stubbornly manual and labour-intensive. What's more, legal documentation and definitions tend to be in physical paper form, which is stimid front-to-back automation. That's changing, and a number of initiatives are underway, including several by ISDA, to digitise the entire lifecycle of a derivatives trade. The pandemic and the shift to remote working are likely to accelerate that change further. So what areas are most in need of a technology fix and what solutions are emerging to tackle them? What's needed to turn an idea for change into a successful technology solution? And what issues are fintech firms focused on today? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Scott O'Malia, ISDA's CEO. Scott, we've got a great guest on The Swap today whose job is investing in new technology companies. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Thanks, Nick. As you know, this is a topic I'm quite
1: passionate about. Back in the day at the CFTC when I was commissioner, I started the Technology Advisory Board to look at the role technology was playing in regulated markets. At ISDA, we aren't just looking at possibilities, but we're actually developing solutions, including data standards, smart contracts, digital definitions, and platforms to distribute our digital products and solutions. Today, we're going to be talking to Mark Beeston, who also knows a thing or two about derivative markets and about innovation. Mark is a partner and founder of Illuminate Financial, a venture capital firm backing companies that, in its own words, solves problems in financial services. Mark's CV before Illuminate spans a gamut of derivatives trading, technology, and including a spell on the ISDA board. Sounds great. So let's bring Mark on. Mark, welcome to The Swap. Thanks so much for joining us. You've had a varied business career that has included derivatives trading at Deutsche Bank, including a stint on the ISDA board. You set up T-Zero, a CDS post-trade processing company, which was sold to ICE as part of the CreditX sale. And you were the CEO for the post-trade risk and information business at ICAP, and now most recently, founder of Illuminate Financial, a venture capital firm. Let me ask you, what led you to start Illuminate Financial, and can you tell us a little bit more about your company?
2: Sure. Well, firstly, let me start by saying thank you for having me, Scott. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here, and it's always good to to do stuff with. Is there, you know, our relationship goes back a very, very long way. I guess Illuminate really almost started like the the idea almost started in my Deutsche career because you know I stopped trading and started moving towards market infrastructure. You go up through the ranks, you become COO of a trading franchise, you become an ISDA board member and and all those other seats that go with the job. So you get this front row seat to what was going on in that generation of, of market infrastructure. I'd gone to the entrepreneurial side. I'd understood a little bit of just how difficult it is to sell emerging solutions. To cynical old managing directors like myself back at a major financial institution. I'd been lucky enough to be part of the management team at ICAP where we invested, we'd bought, we'd acquired and organically grown some really interesting assets around the post-trade and information space. And then I found myself, I guess, five years post-financial crisis, having the same conversation with people over and over again. And, And what I found myself telling my my clients my friends my peers uh, anyone that would listen was i just felt that we were hitting a fundamental moment that was going to require a rearchitecting of the infrastructure of financial markets and it it really didn't have anything to do with technology but really had everything to do with the macro operating environment that was that was coming out of the crisis I look at three fundamental shifts in in the market space at that time. So five years post-crisis, which happens to be five years pre-COVID, I guess. And it was as simple as the industry had gone through an unprecedented quantity of deleveraging. We'd seen all of this enormous quantity, unprecedented quantity of multi-jurisdictional regulation that was a kind of overlapping in its timelines and its reach and, and, and very, very tricky to deal with. And last but not least, I think the industry had almost sleptwalked into a pretty close to zero tolerance compliance environment. And, and what that meant to me was that whilst in the first half of my career, the prime driver of change had always been the front office drive for competitive advantage, that had almost been rendered completely irrelevant in many major financial institutions. And you had this whole new emerged mandatory change agenda driven by cost and by control, by capital and and by compliance, which in the early days of Illuminate, we called the four Cs. And if you weren't getting on top of those those four Cs, you were going to be out of business, right? Whether it was your clients voting with their wallets or whether it was your regulator voting with a sanction. And so a whole set of mandatory change drivers that, that are come out of the the financial crisis and just happened to have arrived at the exact same moment that a whole bunch of new technologies had emerged and were becoming pretty prevalent in our consumer-facing lives. But whilst our industry talks a very good game around the hype cycle of technology, we're pretty slow adopters. and There are some good reasons for that, and there are some bad ones. But ultimately, it's like, okay, this is a generational change moment, right? And I've been fortunate in my career to see all sides of this, not in totality, but enough to be dangerous. What am I going to do about this opportunity and and forming a venture capital firm and raising capital to to go and look for the best solutions in that space and help them come to market and help fix that problem and have hopefully a bit of fun and 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 you know maybe even a profitable outcome as part of it just felt like this is the right thing to do with my career. Let's talk a little bit
1: about some of the recent news Illuminate just announced. And this is, uh, you just closed a $100 million funding round with backing from some very significant players, including Deutsche Börse, Barclays, JP Morgan, IHS market. So far, you've invested in certain areas like wealth management, ESG, and Cryptocurrencies. What are you looking for when you invest in these companies, and are there particular problems you're looking to solve or solutions you focus on? And you touched on that a little bit here earlier.
2: So I think the answer to that is, is we we look at the world through different vectors, right? But fundamentally, what we want to invest in is, is solutions. We have a very, very strong industry network. We're not spray-and-pray type generalists. We want to be close to people who have problems. We want to be close to people that want solutions. And so we've always got an ear to the ground with our, with our partners, whether they're formal partners, such as the ones that you, you listed who've invested in, in us, people on our industry partnership program, or, or, or just informal parts of our, of our network. And we're just collecting problems. We collect problems like magpies. And what we're then doing is we're trying to fit this almost incredible quantity of entrepreneurship and innovation that's coming from the fintech community against those opportunities. Of course, there are themes within that that we have a, a thesis around, but a lot of that comes from just listening to the market and understanding what they need. So, for sure, in fund two, ESG is really important. Carbon is going to become important. Cloud migration, which which might feel like old tech, but in the journey that our conservative, highly regulated, mission critical organizations within financial markets are on. Cloud migration is actually a big deal and most of it's still ahead of us, or the institutionalization of crypto, as you outlined, there are all parts of it. Then in fund one, it would have been post-trade processing, which is always a theme, data in all its forms, fixed income electronification, the collateral process and an optimization of flows and, and workflow, and many others, and probably some that we haven't even that we haven't even come across yet.
1: Now, you've just listed a couple of what sound like technology companies, and I've I've heard you give this speech before, but you've said that you don't invest in technologies, but all the companies in your portfolio feel like tech or even fintech companies. Explain that, why you make that statement.
2: Yeah, I I think I actually make that statement more just to uh, make people think and possibly annoy members of my team. The statement that I make is, we don't invest in technology and it, it's a, it's a oxymoronic statement. Every single thing that we invest in is technology. But what I mean by that is we don't wake up in the morning thinking, what are we doing in AI or what are we doing in blockchain or what are we doing in big data? What we do wake up thinking about is what's happening around suspicious activity reporting in anti money laundering? What's happening around settlement risk in? Non-CLS currencies, or what's happening around liquidity management in the collateral process, and if you take an example, the suspicious activity reporting and anti-money laundering, it's a really important area. It's one of those areas where regulation of of the parties involved is important. But what it tends to do is create an ever increasing number of fixed gates. We should look at this. We should look at this, and just huge quantities of false positives. Well, a great solution for that would actually be the application of AI. You can't apply black box AI to it because a regulator is never going to accept the answer. We decided not to look at those 93% of suspicious activity reports because the black box told us not to. But you can apply a glass box AI approach to that and have effectively machine-augmented or human-explainable AI that allows you to actually really sift the wheat from the chaff and focus on the problem. So, of course, we end up investing in Tuki Taki, and this is from the first fund, and it's an AI company. We've actually invested in a number of AI companies, but we didn't invest because they were AI. We invested because they were solving a really, really critical issue in in our industry and one that our our network really has had appetite for.
1: Okay, let's uh, switch and go back to that question around the financial crisis and the the regulatory reforms that were well-advanced. In the derivatives market, this has included mandatory clearing of standardized derivatives, trading on venues where appropriate, margin requirements for non-clear derivatives, and trade reporting. How important have each of these reforms been in encouraging these new solutions in companies?
2: Well, I I, I think it's an interesting question, right? And it really is a kind of which which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? So is the regulator kind of mandating a new set of solutions? And in response to that, both legacy vendors will try to solve the problem and new vendors, entrepreneurs will try to solve the problem? Or are the regulators becoming aware of emerging new solution types and saying, the market is not adopting these kinds of solutions fast enough. We're not going to mandate an individual solution by name, but but we're certainly going to mandate a course of action that means you've got to adopt a solution, right? And I can't really tell you which comes first, right? What I can tell you is that going back to the earliest days of my career, Microsoft is a pretty significant stalwart of pretty much every major process of the transaction lifecycle, whether it was when I was trading and pricing the derivative, one of the most broadly adopted reconciliation platforms, one of the most broadly adopted collateral management and communication platforms. And certainly regulation has been useful in encouraging organizations to take way more systemically scalable solutions into those kinds of spaces. And I think it would have happened anyway, but it doesn't necessarily do any harm.
1: So for there are listeners out there that don't get Mark's joke, he's talking about Excel spreadsheets in, and email as the great innovator technologies that you were using early days, right?
2: For, for sure. And, and look, I'm, I mean, I look at UMR. I think it's a really important space. I know that the, the Isda are very, very involved in it because as we go live with UMR5, UMR6, the danger is that that just becomes the next space that a combination of an Excel spreadsheet and Outlook become the most commonly adopted solution. And that's fine for the the hedge fund that has five CSAs. But for the bank that is dealing with 10,000 counterparties, that suddenly nine thousand of them starts emailing you every day about your collateral. It's it's a genuine processing nightmare, and one of the expressions that I've used is never it's never caught on. I'll have another crack at it here, Scott. You can help me get it into into the general parlance. In my COO days at Deutsche, we spent fortune. The whole industry spent a fortune on straight through processing, and it does exactly what it says on the tin. You book the trade at the front and hopefully it doesn't touch too much on the way out. And documents went out the far end and we had the whole documentation challenge 10 years ago and we kind of got on top of that. What we really need in all of these areas, it's round trip processing. It's not enough to have it just go out. It's got to go out and it's got to come back and it's got to come back in an efficient and machine consumable way. And it's probably. A great segue into a conversation about the work that you're doing to introduce common standards that that really further the agenda around that space.
1: Well, that is a great point. And for those who follow ISDN, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you do. Uh, we've been developing standard practices and solutions. Uh, it's been in our DNA since uh, the founding of the first master agreement more than 30 years ago. Now, in recent years, we've worked to implement mutualized solutions to support regulatory compliance, and this includes the ISDA standard initial margin model, ISDA create, and the new fallbacks for Ibor de Root is just to name a few. Now, we've also developed the common domain model, which establishes that standard for codable taxonomy of events and processes that occur right through the life of the trade. We believe these have set an irreversible course to digitize the lifecycle of the trade. And hopefully, give you that that round trip experience that the industry so badly needs. Now, given your experience and knowledge of the derivative markets, what do you think will be most effective in in each of these initiatives? Whether it's documentation, automation, and digitization, et cetera.
2: You know me, Scott. I'm a pretty simple guy, right? I, I mean, whether you're talking about the documentation or you're talking about the cutting edge of digitization, it all basically comes down to standardization, right? And that was. Isda's calling in, in the very first days. The volume of the swap market was really enabled by the fact that every paper contract, you know, which was originally a negotiated paper contract, would be, you know, really was able to be simplified down to a you know, to a much more common standard with a, a bunch of clearly understood appendices. It's the work that you're doing with Isda create now around those margin agreements. I think it's super interesting because the nature of the nature of solutions in this market has fundamentally changed, right? I, I kind of get very frustrated with some of the language our industry uses you know, around innovation and digitization. I I like to think of what we're really going through. It's actually digitization 2.0 or maybe even 3.0. The whole expansion of financial services that we've all kind of benefited from during our careers was was based on a first wave of digitization. Yeah, you know, we'll call that largely the move to everybody having a pc on their desk there's a whole series of vendors that are 30 plus years old offering fully integrated soup to nuts solutions but the market's moving really really fast now right and, and and what's really exciting i think about this wave of digitization is that you have this series of new solutions that actually represent best in class business functionality But for them to do that, they kind of need to interoperate. So we have microservices uh, at a technology level. And and what we're actually now trying to do, I think, as an industry is kind of pull together business functionality in, in almost the same architectural way. But it fundamentally relies on my understanding of a swap, my understanding of a day count, my understanding of anything that you can think of in the transaction lifecycle being the same as yours to have that true interoperability and and clarity of handover, right? And I think the work that Isda's done around the common domain model and continues to do is is really just a fantastic foundation level for 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 enabling that. We're
1: we're really enjoying a lot of support in that on that front. I mean who would have thought that lifecycle events are described differently across products, even though we're still dealing with a derivative, yet we still found ways to make it more complicated than it needed to be. Okay, let's change course a little bit. The next major opportunities for global regulatory intervention really look to be around ESG and central bank digital currencies, digital assets in general. These are top of mind for many of the of the new administrations, whether the European Union or the new Biden administration. Illuminate has already made some investments here. What do you think are the most important trends in this sector? And do they have the potential to have a lasting and transformative impact on financial services?
2: So it's a big question. And and actually, it's a big question applied to two very big subjects. So I think you have to take them separately. I think the whole ESG impact, and let's include carbon in that space as well, we are in the earliest days. And this is an asset class in its own right. We're not going to be talking about ESG as part of fintech in five years' time. We're going to be talking about ESG as a totally fundamental asset class. And I would hope at that point where we're running a separate ESG fund or, or a few funds. In that space, there's a need for solutions that are actually going to help people find the data that they need. So how do I demonstrate carbon emissions? How do I demonstrate the quality of working conditions for my employees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? So there's raw data, which needs to be surfaced, and that's going to be huge. And then it's actually the challenge of actually helping people understand what they need and how to use what they could potentially have, have access to. And I think that's going to be huge as well. And, and those are the two places that we've positioned ourselves so far. The crypto one, I think, is super interesting. The institutionalization of crypto, as you mentioned, we made an investment there. Pretty amusingly, we actually got taken out of it. PayPal acquired that company, which was Curve, uh, and it was announced literally about 10 days before we even announced Fund 2. So that's how fast that space is, is institutionalizing. Uh, we had our first exit out of Fund 2 before we'd even announced that we had a Fund 2. I think it's a super important space, right? But it's a it's a conflation of lots of spaces, right? There's the whole blockchain rails for settlement. There's crypto infrastructure as some crypto assets become institutional grade and institutions want to hold them. I think the whole COVID thing has obviously massively played into that as well as people kind of get concerned about inflation and they look to limited pools of digital assets as not just being ways to store and transfer value, but actually also as a potential inflation hedge. So COVID has had many, 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 obviously very negative uh, impacts, but on financial services and some elements within financial services have been pretty interesting. The actual... Digitization of the fiat currencies themselves at a central bank level is a really, really interesting space. It's got to happen because the rails are becoming that digital and they either they either get involved or you know someone's going to make it happen for them. Again, we tend to exercise our investment thesis by kind of looking for the trend and the way to surf the trend rather than pick a single point winner because of the trend. We express the same sort of view around fixed income electronification in fund one, if you asked 100 people, how do I express a view on fixed income electronification? 99 of them are going to say invest in a venue, right? Some venues succeed and the ones that do succeed become wildly valuable. The ones that don't succeed don't and more fail than succeed. There are interesting ways to express that view. We've invested in OMS and EMS in the fixed income space. We've invested in market gateways and connectivity to the underlying markets where you can win, irrespective of who's winning at the point of execution. But those two spaces that you mentioned, crypto and and ESG, they're going to be huge.
1: Now we've spoken about key transformations in the wholesale markets that have been driven by regulation. Given your expertise in the derivatives market, do you believe that digital transformation is possible without a push from regulators?
2: I definitely think it's possible without a push. There's a unprecedented uh, amount of innovation kind of going on. I think the way the banks had been approaching innovation for a long time, it was all kind of driven by a lab type approach and and trying to create more innovative ideas from within the organization. And that's fine, but but the reality is there's just this incredible quantity of innovation going on outside the factory gate, right? We are seeing in excess of 700 new companies in our narrow mandate a year, right? So 150, 170, 200 companies uh, a quarter. It's easier than ever to deliver technology. It's cheaper than ever to deliver technology. Company goes out and raises $2 million tomorrow. That's $2 million they actually have to spend on getting their product to market. They don't have to spend one of it with Hewlett-Packard buying a big gray box because they can access untold amounts of scalable computing resource with any one of a number of cloud providers and we've got a huge amount of domain expertise that's left the market and can go away and solve problems that they that they can relate to in an entrepreneurial way the key is always going to be to connect suppliers with buyers that's one of the core tenets of our sort of partnership model regulation has a role because it makes Certain situations more pressing, it just kind of reorders the deck in terms of the prioritization. But a regulation can be overturned, repealed, extended, deleted by a new administration, you know all of which we've seen in the last 12 months, frankly, never mind the last 12 years. So it can't be the fundamental tenant of building a business, and it certainly for us isn't a fundamental tenant of investing in a business. It's a nice following wind.
1: Now, you mentioned the uh, coronavirus will have a big impact on business and some of our preconceived ideas about how business is done and what business continuity looks like, and it may ultimately accelerate digitization of financial markets. What do you think will be the lasting impact of the pandemic, and and how does this shift occur in particular terms of digital security?
2: We should always, when we're talking about COVID, kind of start by acknowledging that we are almost certainly in financial services, largely living our first world version of it. And so there's an awful impact of COVID and we should definitely acknowledge it before we move on to talk about how it impacts our world. It actually demonstrated the art of the possible to financial services, right? I mean, we actually created a year ago, March, 2020, an almost overnight emergency digitization that was unthinkable and the light stayed on. I'm sure that there were hairy moments for some people and the risk profiles of certain functions changed and probably introduced a whole bunch of new compliance challenges that, that will need to be addressed. But we've all been sat here for 12 months already and probably more thinking, what's the new normal? And none of us still know. But what we definitely do know is the future of BCP. It's you sat there. It's me sat here and. That fundamentally means that we need systems that can cope with that BCP environment, irrespective of whether the back-to-work environment is full-time in the office, no one in the office, some hybrid, some rotation. We need a toolkit that allows for what effectively has become our workforce, never mind our systems, our workforce is in the cloud. We're all in separate locations. So the COVID impact is actually, I think, an incredible uh, catalyst of this next wave of digitization. It's demonstrated that we can adopt tools at speed, even, even in our relatively conservative arena. And frankly, if you'd arrived in January 2020 as the CIO of a major conservative financial institution, it was really easy to push back against being on the cutting edge of a cloud migration or a low code revolution or you know big data or any of these things you could kind of iterate towards it that is not acceptable anymore but that has been that has been done away with you can't have a team of 100,000 people in 100,000 different locations relying on the servers that are in your basement and that's a game changer and i you know, it makes me really really excited and again scott you know me well enough to know i can get very excitable I set this business up seven years ago. I'm as excited about it today as I've ever been because COVID has opened everybody's eyes as to as to what we can really achieve. Well, that's a
1: perfect segue to ask my final question. And I always like to ask my guests whether they would recommend a career in financial services to a young person today. But given the many roles that you've had in trading and technology, innovation, and now investing... I'd like to ask you which of these rules would you recommend to a young person, and why?
2: I think it's actually a really uh, it's a really tricky question, and I'm going to do the political thing and totally duck it and answer the question that I that I want to answer. So, if you asked me, would I recommend financial markets as an interesting place for a young person? As question number one, I think the answer to that is absolutely. There are so many exciting things going on in financial markets. When I entered thirty years ago. The traders were kings then the salesmen were kings and now it seems the tech guys are the kings right so so markets markets move right that's the exciting thing about uh about markets i tell young people all the time right you, you've got to find what you love and so some old duffer like me saying oh actually you should be in the investing you should be in trading you should be in litigation you should be in law right that's that's not that's not the right answer but the, the right answer is Find the thing that excites you about getting up out of bed every single day. And financial markets are a really exciting place to do it. Become a world-class expert in whatever it is that excites you. And then work out how you're going to monetize it.
1: It's a great place to end. Thank you very much for your participation today, Mark. It's always good to speak to you and get your insight as to where the market's going and the innovation aspect as well. So thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to
0: work with Isla. Scott, you talked about some of the areas where technology can make a difference. And some of those that were discussed are established part of the markets, um, or the derivatives markets in particular. And there was a bit of a conversation around the uncleared margin rules. Some of the newer areas, the cryptocurrencies, the ESG, what's your view on that? Which parts of the derivatives markets do you think are most in need of automation and digitization? I think a lot of them, actually.
1: The rules are driving a lot of innovation here. There are a lot of problems to solve because when the innovation came in or when the regulations came in, innovation followed largely to provide consistency, uniformity, accuracy in reporting, compliance with new infrastructures in between. So I think it's just a natural progression. And is has been a key part in supplying kind of common solutions, whether it's going to be the common domain model which uh, establishes that digital representation of the trade, which everybody can use in a common format to code and digitize processes. to Create, which is an online negotiation platform, so you can do multilateral negotiations for your ISDA documentation or CSAs to support your initial margin exchange. And we're even going in, and this is really exciting and we'll be releasing this soon, is the interest rate definitions. The definitions are part of every trade. And making sure that you can digitize the definitions or use those in a digital format will really help the lifecycle of the trade as well. So it is that we kind of look at all aspects of the product, the platform it could be on, and then how we're going to deliver that to make sure that we keep pace with the market, provide common solutions that everybody can use, and then let the innovators take over from there. So it's a really good relationship between broad industry standards and then being able to hand it off to technology firms like the ones that Mark invests in.
0: Well, we are going to come back and discuss the CDM again in future episodes and and particularly some of the, the practical applications and how it can be used in everyday use in the derivatives market. But for now, we're just about out of time. Scott, thanks a lot for your company once again, and I will speak to you next time. Look out for our forthcoming episodes when we'll be talking about the timetable for LIBOR's demise, phase five rollout of initial margin requirements and other important topics. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website www.isda.org and our social media channels. See you next time.